the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to a new edition of Vatican Insider. It's been a quiet week at the Vatican because Pope Francis and ranking members of the Roman Curia are on a Lenten retreat this week, each person in a private, individual way. Retreat time ends Friday, March 3rd. This is the third year that the Pope and Curial officials will be doing individual retreats. In 2020, Francis had a bad cold that kept him from participating in a retreat, and then, for two COVID-related years, 2021 and 2022, everyone followed individual retreat programs. They did this instead of meeting in Aricia at a retreat center, as they had been doing since 2014, when Pope Francis inaugurated the idea of a retreat outside Vatican City. Now, my guest this week in the interview segment is Father Brad Easterbrooks, but he was a deacon studying in Rome when I interviewed him for Vatican Insider. He has such an amazing story, one that continues following his ordination in June 2022, that I offer an encore this weekend. I do so as I am still mostly homebound due to issues with my back and have not been able to do a new interview. Thanks for understanding. Now to some of the news highlights of the week. Sunday, February 26th, at the Angelus, after reciting the Marian Prayer, Pope Francis turned his thoughts to the recent tragedies in the Holy Land. He noted that many people, including children, are being killed, and he asked, how can we put an end to this spiral of violence? He renewed his appeal that dialogue reign over hatred and revenge. I pray to God for the Palestinians and the Israelis, that they may find the road to fraternity and peace with the help of the international community. He also invited prayers for Burkina Faso, that dear country where terrorist attacks continue to take place. Francis asked for prayers for Ukraine and for the Syrian and Turkish people, victims of terrible earthquakes. He also prayed for the people who lost their lives when their overloaded boat sank in rough seas just off the coast of Calabria in Italy. Over 40 bodies, including many children, were recovered. I pray for them, said the Pope, for those who are lost and for those who have survived. Late Sunday afternoon, the Pope began his private retreat. Monday, February 27th. Holy See Press Office Director Matteo Bruni announced that accepting the invitation of the civil and ecclesial authorities, His Holiness Pope Francis will make an apostolic journey to Hungary from April 28th to the 30th, visiting the city of Budapest. The papal visit will mark Pope Francis's 41st apostolic journey abroad and the 61st nation visited since the start of his pontificate. During his three-day journey, the Pope will visit with refugees and poor people, as well as with children of the Blessed Laszlo Batiani Stratman Institute. As is customary, he will address authorities, civil society and the diplomatic corps, young people, bishops, priests, deacons, consecrated persons, seminarians and pastoral workers, and representatives of the academic and cultural world. More than half of Hungarians are Christian, and at least 37% of the population 
identify as Catholic. Wednesday, March 1st, cardinals and other high-level positions at the Vatican will no longer be able to live in Vatican-connected apartments for free or at special prices. The Vatican owns an extensive amount of real estate, both in and outside Vatican walls. Apartments are principally managed by APSA, the administration of the patrimony of the Apostolic See. The Pope's decision to drop housing benefits for upper management was communicated in a note from the Vatican's new prefect of the Secretariat for the Economy. This rescriptum was posted in the San Damaso courtyard inside Vatican City. Also March 1st, Pope Francis sent a message Wednesday saying he was praying for the victims of a train crash in northern Greece. Authorities said at least 36 people died and more than 75 were hospitalized after two trains collided near the Vale of Tempe. The death toll as of Friday, March 3rd, was 57. The station master in the nearby city of Larissa was arrested by authorities and has since confessed to error. Thursday, March 2nd, in a telegram to Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, Pope Francis mourned the untimely and tragic death of Auxiliary Bishop David O'Connell, the much-loved bishop known for being close to the people. Praising his witness as a priest, the Pope gave thanks for the bishop's years of devoted priestly and episcopal ministry to the Church in Los Angeles marked especially by his profound concern for the poor, immigrants, and those in need, his efforts to uphold the sanctity and dignity of God's gift of life, and his zeal for fostering solidarity, cooperation, and peace within the local community. The bishop's funeral is scheduled for Friday the 3rd. Also Thursday, in his prayer intention for March 2023 on video, Pope Francis prays for victims of abuse. He says the Church must serve as a model of safeguarding and must offer safe spaces for victims to be heard, supported psychologically, and protected. Well, there was no news Friday in the Vatican, but now it's time for my talk with Brad Easterbrooks. special item on EWTNRC.com this month is the St. Joseph the Worker Novena Bracelet, designed exclusively for EWTN. It has earth-toned, handmade glass beads, a St. Joseph the Worker and Holy Family medal, a small St. Benedict crucifix, and even comes with a prayer card. Beautiful for anyone praying to this patriarch of the church. To order, go to EWTNRC.com and search for item number 741. EWTN, Teaching the Truth. I had called in, I think, a month or so ago, and I had told you guys I was in my RCIA program, and I had wondered about what I could do more to get more involved with the church and such. Well, Saturday, I am finally having my confirmation, and I wanted to thank you guys for giving me all the information and having your program on here that has helped me so much. I cannot tell you enough how much it has helped me. Have you ever heard someone say, we need change? G.K. Chesterton says, modern men are not familiar with the rational arguments for tradition, but they are familiar, almost wearily familiar, with all the rational arguments for change. We should not be too quick to favor the new over the old. We should never tear down a wall 
unless we know why it was put up. If we don't understand the purpose of a tradition, we should first learn that purpose and then decide if the tradition needs to be changed or if we are the ones who need to change. Maybe the tradition is right and we are wrong. Spend more time with the Apostle of Common Sense. Visit Chesterton.org for more information and go to EWTNRC.com to discover more books and programs written and inspired by G.K. Chesterton. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Well, I want to welcome my guest to a very exciting and very different guest this weekend on Vatican Insider. I'm talking to a young seminarian from San Diego, Brad Easterbrooks, and he's actually not a seminarian. He was ordained a deacon, so that is the last step prior to his ordination as a priest in just a few months away. I have been connected, as most of my listeners know, with uh, the North American College, our seminary in Rome, for at least 30 of my 40 years in Rome, and try to get to meet and know a lot of the seminarians. And I was particularly struck, it was actually Brad and I, I don't remember the year, Brad, that we met with your family visiting Rome. It would have been at least a couple of years ago, because it was before COVID. Pre-COVID, right, Mm -hmm. exactly. So welcome, Brad, to Vatican Insider. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Joan. It's great to be here. The story of a vocation is always a wonderful story, as I've discovered over the years. And having shared stories uh, over meals with a lot of you at the college or, or in my home, And your story is beautiful, but it's remarkable in so many ways. Even though we've known each other for a while, I did not know some of your background. I did not know that uh, for a time you worked at a consulting firm on political campaigns. Then you went to law school. Then the Navy came along. You worked for JAG. And then the path straightened out, and, and of course you were on the road to, to the priesthood. But let's look at that background. I think it's so it's probably going to be hugely important even in your life as a priest. I think so. I think, you know, one of the things that I've reflected on over the years is that God doesn't allow things to happen or he he doesn't do things in your life without a a purpose or a plan. And so he he called me to the priesthood, but he allowed me to um, live some years, uh, you know, doing what I thought I wanted to be doing. And, And all of those experiences certainly shaped informed me uh, and prepared me with uh, additional tools and resources that that uh, have been a part of my formation now in seminary in preparation for priesthood. Well, certainly working for a, a consulting firm, you had to have certain qualities. How did you get involved in political campaigns? Because I know that came about when you were with the firm. Well, that's right. It was, it was, there was actually some crossover there. In, in fact, um, the consulting firm uh, it had both political and corporate clients. And so we, we had ah. Fortune 500 companies as our clients and then also political campaigns. And it was because many of the, the partners had um, come up in a crisis communications world. And so we were doing crisis communications consulting and some marketing consulting uh, for major firms and then also for our political clients. One of those political clients uh, happened to be the, the John McCain presidential campaign. And so I had always, you know, I had been a political science major in college, and and I had always been interested. In fact, during college, I had been a White House intern. I had been an intern with the governor's office in Massachusetts, which was then Governor Mitt Romney. Um, So that was a a little bit ago. Um, And then I I followed that interest uh, into this this business political consulting world, which uh, ended up placing me onto the McCain uh, presidential campaign. 
So I, I worked for the McCain presidential campaign, and I was actually traveling around uh, with the candidates. And I, you know, I had always planned to go to law school, and I just didn't know when. And my career took right. off. It, it, essentially, I got out of college, and and I entered a a a career that was supposed to be temporary anyway. I was always planning it for it to be a temporary career uh, before law school, but it took off. And so at some point I had to decide and, you know, we didn't, uh, the election was not um, won for John McCain. We didn't win the election. So I went back to the, the firm and I did some more work uh, for some business clients. And then I decided I'd enter law school. So I entered law school in, in 2009. I knew during law school that I was very interested in the Judge Advocate General's Corps, uh, or known as JAG. It's it's basically the the law firm for a military branch. So each branch of service has its own JAG Corps, and then the Navy itself has a JAG Corps that that serves um, the Navy, and then um, we have a partnership with the the Marine JAGs as well because it's the same service. Well, I'm guessing a few of our listeners are going to remember the TV series JAG, and I don't remember what years it it aired. I lived in Rome so long, I don't have a, a memory of a, of a lot of those things. So people, I think when they hear JAG, they even know what it means, you know. And, and yes, and I get asked about it all the time, about I'm how sure. accurate it is. And there are aspects of it that are accurate and aspects that are inaccurate. I think uh, in, in one of the scenes, um, the, the protagonist of the, of the show actually lands a, a jet on an aircraft carrier. I have not landed a jet on an aircraft carrier, but I have been on an aircraft carrier out to sea. So, so, so there's some aspects that are similar, and some some that are, that are actually not uh, not accurate. But, but yes, um, JAG is is basically the law firm for the Navy, and it's uh, it includes lawyers who advise naval leaders on what their legal obligations are and what their legal options are. And then also lawyers who litigate in cases. As with any large group of people, there are going to be crimes committed. And then when those crimes are committed, the Navy actually will have jurisdiction over those people um, so that they are the ones, um, the, the Navy's going to be the ones prosecuting those people or defend, you know, or there are attorneys who are defending them. And so I've actually served both on the prosecution side and the defense side. So I so had... What, just a question, mm-hmm. would a military person then involved in you know, some uh, some ill-doing, would they, the military would supersede over a civil court? Is that the... They'd have uh, the right of first jurisdiction. And so, um, and what you mean by civil court is would be a, um, a civilian court, for, in, for instance, the state of California. Oh, yeah, or, exactly. Right. E- exactly. And and so the, the military would have the, the first right of jurisdiction over... Okay. Over a sailor, and now we don't always assert that, or the Navy doesn't always assert that. Um, however, it's it's very common, especially because if a crime is committed on a ship, who has jurisdiction, or if a crime oh, is sure. committed on a on a base overseas, who has jurisdiction? And so, because of the military member's uh, status as a as a member of of the military, the the federal government through the military asserts a jurisdiction over their conduct, and so they uh, they will be if they if someone commits an offense, commits a crime, they'll be uh, at least considered for prosecution in the military system first. Thank you for allowing me to interrupt mm-hmm. your tale of your of your time at, at JAG. And then you traveled. You were overseas. Yes. Yeah, so with- I, I was I was stationed first in San Diego for a couple of years, and and I did a whole gamut of, of different um, 
jobs, uh, legal jobs. Um, I was advising commanding officers on on legal obligations. I had an estate planning office uh, for a few months. I I did all sorts of things, and I I did a little bit of prosecutorial work. And then I was stationed in Yokosuka, Japan, which is uh, about an hour and a half south of Tokyo in Japan, and it's the Navy's largest naval installation in the country of Japan. And I was stationed there as a defense attorney for about two and a half years. And so while there, I had clients who had uh, been prosecuted or they were being prosecuted in the military. And I was there, uh, I was their attorney while they were being prosecuted. Was that kind of where the seed for your vocation was planted? It definitely happened in Japan. I, you know, I had, uh, I had entered uh, the church again. You know, I was born a Catholic, so I was, I was baptized as as a child, and then I was sent to Catholic school, but I had not really practiced the faith, uh, at least not the Catholic faith, uh, after after about fifth grade or sixth grade, and that that was because of a number of factors. But we started attending a Protestant church, and and so I was going to a Protestant youth group, uh, and I got a lot out of that. I you know I I definitely would have considered myself a a Christian during high school, but not a Catholic. And uh, I went to Boston College, which is a Catholic university, sure. but I still was not a practicing Catholic there. And it was not until law school that I had uh, reconsidered my Catholic faith. And so as a Catholic today, who knows how the church works, I was always a Catholic, um, even though I didn't consider myself one because I'd been baptized a Catholic. Sure. But knowing that in my mid-20s caused me to reflect, you know, what, what is it about Catholicism? You know, Catholicism makes these great claims about having the fullness of the truth and having the papacy and having the Eucharist, but is it true? And and as an attorney, or as a, a starting as a law student, um, thinking through these questions exactly. with a legal mind focused me, and and I started to look into it, and I had all of these conversations with with friends, you know, roommates who had been lapsed Catholics themselves or worse and still were, and. And we started to have these conversations that actually led many of us into the faith in different paths wow. in different ways, but all at the same time. And for me, uh, what I realized was the church has always taught from the beginning, from the first of the church fathers, who, whose writings we still have, dating back to the first century. The church has always taught and always believed that the Eucharist is the real presence of Jesus Christ. That when the church celebrates the Eucharist, Jesus is truly present. Oh, that the Holy Spirit comes down and consecrates through the priest the bread and the wine and becomes the body and blood of Christ. And if that's the case, is it true? And I came to believe through faith that it has to be true because of how the church is constituted, how the church survived all of these centuries through civilization after civilization empire after empire, king after king, all of these different... And uh, the occasional heresy. (laughs) And the occasional heresy, and and constantly being attacked. But there was this continuity of faith from from the first popes, from Peter, and then the first fathers of the church, and the saints, and their beliefs. And and you can really immerse yourself in what what they believed. There's this continuity of faith from Saint Cecilia to St. Mother Teresa. There's not, they would know each other. And that's a miracle in and of itself. It's almost its own 
basis for credibility. So I became convinced of that in law school. And so I re-entered the church. I, you know, I went to my first confession in something like 17 years. And I was then confirmed uh, at the end of law school. And so when I entered the military, I entered the military you know, fully excited, enthused, fully alive in my faith and, and growing in my faith. And so the seed certainly was planted as soon as I, I got in, you know, and I had already commissioned as a naval officer when this, this all happened. And so I was always going into the, the Navy JAG Corps, but, you know, back in the back of my mind, in the back of my prayer, I was thinking, does God want me to be a priest? And still, you know, I, I had that residual uh, personal desire not to be because I had always planned to get married and have kids. And, you know, I was now mid to mid to late 20s and and thinking it's it's now time to settle down god has enabled me to become a practicing catholic again so i can date as a catholic and i was you know excited about that and so i did date as a catholic so i i began dating uh in in the military as a as a catholic with catholic girlfriends thinking you know this is this is for me and and i'll get to have a, sure. a wonderful catholic family but the problem with all that is is that was my plan that wasn't necessarily god's plan listening to the Lord. <laughs> That's right. And so he let me work through that. You know, God doesn't, we're not robots to God. He doesn't force us to do anything. He inspires us. He gives us the grace. He gives us the love. He gives us everything from his own life. He has self-communicated to us through his son, right. his very self, but he doesn't force it. He lets us. But he choose. also gave us free will. That's exactly. right. That's right. And so he let me work through it myself. So uh, I had um, come out of a, a long-term relationship uh, right before moving to Japan. And I thought, you know what, God? I've been doing it my way. Even, even you know, as a, as a believing daily mass Catholic at this point, right? I've been doing it my way. I'm going to let you show me if this is for me. So I moved to Japan. Um, and, and that gave me... Uh, the opportunity, you know, just to to take my pulse. And so while in Japan, I started to seriously pray about the possibility of priesthood. I would say I didn't desire it. I thought if I op I could consider it, and if it, I didn't discern it, then I could close that door in my life and then move on and be happy. And uh, what I did was I opened the door, and so God came in, you know. And and you, you um, that scripture comes to mind. Lo, I stand at the door and knock. And so Christ was at the door and he was knocking and I opened it. And so then he came in and he took it from there. And I totally understand that. I had a very critical moment in my life. I was a little older than you would have been at the time. And I remember after I got over this huge drama with the aid of faith, family, and friends, I have to say, I remember one day, and it was in Southern California, as a matter of fact, I have a lot of family there. My parents retired near San Diego. Anyway, um, I remember just looking up to heaven. For some reason, we think that God is only up there. We never think he's seated right next to us, you know, as we work or at the dinner table or whatever. I just remember looking up and saying, Lord, my life is all in your hands. And you know, Brad, I could almost hear him laughing. I gave my life to God and wow, did he change it. And he did for you. He did in a big way. And at multiple stages. You know, conversion is not just one and done. It's it's not something where you, you have one experience of conversion and then you proceed forward and life's going to be, you know, in all in one trajectory. It, 
there are there are conversions and then there are deeper conversions and and conversions in different ways in you know w- one was sure. the conversion to the faith and then in in this case this was the conversion to the vocation and the sure. process that God led me through uh, to make that conversion which involved giving up one of my personal desires you know a desire that's a good desire because this is not about choosing between one thing that's good and one thing that's bad it was a, it was a desire about placing aside a something i really wanted that was good that god has actually marriage and a family yeah. called others to that that's their vocation uh, but in this case god was calling me to this other vocation and giving me the freedom to consider it and say yes you know i have a a good mentor who has constantly, you know, reminded me, and it's it's something that's um, that's helped me on along this path. Uh, she's a religious sister, and she she has told me, you know, God can call you to the priesthood, but He wants you to decide whether or not you want to say yes. Yes, exactly. And and so your yes is not obligated by His call. He'll still love you if you choose to get married. Wow. But if you choose to say yes, you're doing so freely. It's your desire too. And so that process of conversion to this vocational calling went from my desire being for marriage to now my desires for priesthood. And so my yes is totally free. Well, you know, I think both you and I in very different ways because I wanted the same thing and assumed that I would have what my mom and dad and 18 aunts and uncles had, that is to say a good marriage and family, and that I could impact lives that way. And God had other plans. I know you will impact many, many family lives. In, in you know, you're going to be a priest in a few months. We'll talk about that. But you will impact many more lives than maybe you even would have. Um, as the father of a family, you would have obviously impacted, you know, your wife and children and so forth. And I don't have the husband or children, but I do know, because they've told me, you know, how many lives I've impacted. So you're just months away from being ordained a priest, right? June? That's right. June 24th in San Diego. The Feast of St. John. But not this year, actually, because because it's following oh, it on the Friday yeah. that's uh, the Feast of the Sacred Heart. Oh, of course. So, so my my ordination will be on the Feast of the Sacred Heart. So, the Feast of Saint John the Baptist is going to be moved this year to, I believe, the day before, and and then my first Mass will be the next day, which will be on the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So, oh. so I'll be ordained on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, and then I'll have the Feast of the Immaculate Heart the next morning. Doubly blessed! How wonderful! Well, Italy always celebrates, of course, the Feast of St. John in a big way. And in non-COVID times, there's always big rock concerts at St. John Lateran Basilica, etc. That's all the time I have today with Reverend Brad Easterbrooks, a deacon at the North American College in Rome. We come back next week for part two of our conversation when we talk about his future as a military chaplain, a challenging and yet rewarding way to spend one's priesthood in a parish that spans across the world. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.